0: Detroit and the world. Welcome to another episode of Authentically Detroit, broadcasting live from various locations here in the city of Detroit, powered by the Eastside Community Network and sponsored by none other than the Ford Foundation. We're also a content partner to the Bridge Detroit publication. I'm Orlando Bailey.
1: And I'm Donna Givens.
0: Thank you for listening in and supporting our efforts to build a platform for authentic voices for real people on the east side of Detroit. We want you to like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast on whatever platform you listen to us on. We drop a new episode every single week, so turn on those All notifications. Right. Today we are talking about a new journalism and engagement organization launching here in the city of Detroit, entitled <laughs> Bridge Detroit. Joining us for the conversation today is Steven Henderson, Stephen is the founding editor of Bridge Detroit and a former writer and editor for the Detroit Free Press, Baltimore Sun, and Chicago Tribune. He is the host of WDET's Detroit Today and of Detroit Public Television's American Black Journal and One Detroit. He is the winner of the 2014 Pulitzer Prize for commentary, and he is a Detroit resident and native. Stephen Henderson, welcome to Authentically Detroit. Hey. <laughs> hey, welcome. <laughs> also joining us for the conversation is Katherine Kelly. Katherine is the managing editor of Bridge Detroit and was the publisher of the Michigan Citizen for more than a decade, a widely read and respected community newspaper that was started on her parents' dining room table in 1978. Wow. In the 90s, she spent some time at Vibe Magazine and Russell Simmons' One World. In recent years, Catherine has worked with Quicken Loans, BetRock, Shinola, and Michigan State University. Catherine Kelly, welcome to Authentically Detroit. Yes. Thank you. Oh man, we are so excited to have you guys here. Listen, we are so official, Donna. We got Stephen Henderson <laughs> and Catherine. We Cathy, do,
1: we you. do. Remember, and then we just had this conference room conversation about what we were going to do.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and look at what happened. Yeah. So. How was everybody's weekend? Anybody do anything fun? What's up? What y'all, what y'all been up to? What y'all been looking at? You know, weekends don't seem any different than weekdays now. Because <laughs> we're all still in the house.
2: <laughs> I spend most of the weekends sleeping. <laughs> Good. I know that's right. I need it.
0: Catherine, what about you? you do anything spectacular or fun? It's
3: pretty mellow. Um, working a little bit on the launch of Bridge Detroit, so... <laughs> Just a little, right?
0: <laughs> Just a little. Just a little, <laughs> right. <laughs> Donna, did you catch up on Insecure on uh, on Sunday yesterday? Well,
1: you know, I, I stay in touch with Insecure. That's my show. Um, <laughs> but, you know, weekends are very different from weekdays to me. I feel like I never stop working during the week. And um, work can spill over into the evening and the early mornings, 3 a.m. So this weekend, we took it easy. And we also celebrated two years with my fiance, Um by going to the Dequindre Cut. That's one place you can go outside. And hey. it was our first date. Um, so, you know, it was a beautiful a day a Detroit
0: date. Buddy. It
1: was, right? And so it was a first date because I just really loved the Dequindre Cut and I only went to it for a work event. I said, well, I just want to do that for fun. So he said, where do you want to go? And I said, Quinder Cut. The first day we went there it was like ninety degrees outside, and we were walking in the heat. We didn't have enough water and, and, and the reflection was a horrible first date. It was a terrible <laughs> idea and um you know, but he never showed any upset didn't act upset. we just laughed about it later, so yeah, we had a good time, and it was great just being outdoors because I remember that you can be outdoors, you don't have to stay indoors just because we have to um you know be socially distant from each other or physically distant, uh,
0: yeah. Yeah. I watched uh, my president, Barack Obama, deliver one of <laughs> the greatest commencement speeches I've ever heard in my life. I wish he was my commencement speaker uh, back <laughs> in 2012. I thought that was really cool. I, I got a look at the uh, Nelly and Ludacris battle happening on Instagram. I don't know. Uh, what was happening there with Nelly's audio. So I th- I think the new internet joke is, if you get on the internet and nobody can hear you, you're Teddy Riley. So they were calling him <laughs> Nelly Riley, which was hilarious. <laughs> which was hilarious. So, so who won though? Who won? Luda Chris! Of course. So uh, ne- shout out to Nelly, right? If he ever hears this, Nelly had an amazing run, but Nelly was playing songs that nobody like knew or remembered. Luda was pumping out Hit after hit after hit. So uh, I watched that and was inter- thoroughly entertained by that and caught the last episode of Insecure. That's, that's the show, Donna. I just, mm-hmm. I don't know why. I, I, I love that show. It's some great storytelling. Black folks, Larry Realmore and Issa Rae, yeah. executive producers and creators of Insecure on HBO. So if you haven't checked it out, you should. I was gonna say, I'm, I'm actually a few seasons behind on that. <laughs> <laughs> but I um, love that wow. shit. Steven, you wow. gotta catch up. Get with the times. Because now, can't, <laughs> because now we can because now we can't, can't even do. uh talk about like what just went on, Donna. Well, I can
1: say, generally speaking, that I don't know anybody who has not had a Molly Issa kind of situation Jeff, with <laughs> the friendship where your friends no longer are as compatible as they seem or as they used to be. Is anybody else experienced that or is it me?
0: Oh no, I've been well, Not
3: the only one. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you know, and I, keep, then, I keep reading about this on the show. I know who those characters are, of course. Right. Uh, but like I said, I'm a few seasons behind. So I'm like, what is going on that uh, has broken them up that way?
0: Steven, it's really easy to catch up. The episodes are only like 25 minutes. Yeah. Exactly. I'll take some time and catch up so that we can rap about this for real. Because Miley and Issa, like, it's so bad. Uh, Issa was going into a restaurant. This was like the last frame, right? Issa was going into a restaurant and saw Molly sitting at the bar. I guess it was a restaurant they often mm-hmm. frequented together. And she turned around and got back in the car. I'm like, man, this is serious. <laughs> yeah. so, and uh, shout out to Michael Jordan and the Last Dance documentary that's been airing every Sunday on Netflix. So it was a lot of cool stuff. Shout out um, to
1: Isaiah, you know, Team you know, Pistons. You know, you're, you're young enough to shout out michael jordan that was almost illegal when we were young so <laughs> if you were in detroit you just didn't like the pistons you know it was michael jordan i don't care how like good he was bulls.
0: you didn't like the bulls no,
1: no we didn't li- i'm sorry you didn't like the bulls i'm sorry did yeah. i say pistons of course yeah, i did, did. <laughs> um, yes you love the pistons we love the bad boys and you know all kinds of jokes about michael jordan we never thought he was the greatest until he retired and the pistons weren't good anymore <laughs> Our young people are like we love michael jordan you know okay whatever lining up in, and buying jordans
0: i'm sorry i came up in in that jordan era i was behind i was born the the year exactly. the second year that the bad boys grabbed that title so right yeah
3: so, um with, was john sally i'm terrible with basketball he was a bad boy right yes I do do you remember when he used to have those like parties and those yes. clubs in Detroit?
1: Yes. There yeah. used to
3: be this one space on like six mile in Livernoy. And I used to go to the John Sally parties like in the
1: 90s? Early yes. 80s, 90s? 80s, yes. 90s, 90s. He had this party at at nine six 696 or 96 and Telegraph. And that little shopping center there. And I went there and it was like all women at the party, and they were all <laughs> dressed up. Some of them had on their Sunday clothes. It was like somebody's grandmother told the girl, go, <laughs> so it was like, they didn't even know how to dress <laughs> <In> for <front of laughs> see, And it, people stood in line, so I've always been, you know, heard I refused to stand in line and greet him. But anyway, you know, I had a, I, I had a Rick Mahorn crush. I'll be honest. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I love Rick
0: Mahorn too. Rick was the one. John Sally used to throw parties in the city of Detroit. Wow. Yeah.
3: I, I rolled up on John Sally once. I was in LA and I was like, oh, it's like I remember your parties in Detroit. And he looked at me. <laughs> it's always
0: nice when Detroit just kind of pops up on people every now Man. and then. What a time to be alive, though. Man, yeah. I yeah. just wish. All right, guys. Do you
1: remember he had that one party in Palmer Woods?
2: Well, at the, at his house.
1: Yeah, at his house in Palmer Woods, right? Oh. And so um, I have a friend, a couple of friends. I'm not going to name their names, but you name can call them. them. And they posed as photographers, so they could go in. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that is how small Detroit is. John Sally married someone I went to
0: elementary school with. Mm. Wow, is he still married to her? I think I think they are still married. Wow, yeah. that's amazing. Mm. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Detroit is one of the smallest big cities is, right man I mean we're massive but we're small all right guys it's time for fresh off the press news that we are thinking about if you have pieces that you want discussed on authentically Detroit you can hit us up on our socials at authentically Detroit on Facebook Instagram and Twitter or you can email us at authentically at gmail.com Donna fresh off the press
1: well, um, hold on, let me pull up the story. Uh, Orlando, can you read the story? Because yes, my, so the headline
0: is entitled, Whitmer yeah. settled the Detroit literacy okay. lawsuit. What that means and what it doesn't. We got right. an op-ed piece by Nancy Kaffer at the Detroit Free Press.
1: Right, and there's a lot of confusion about what that has meant and what was possible. Um, what it basically means, though, is that a, an appeals panel, not the full appeals court, um, which is primarily conservative, um, said that it was okay for this case to go forward and found that there was a constitutional duty to provide basic education and or that the state of Michigan had egregiously neglected that duty. So it was not as far reaching as what some people wanted to say because it does not necessarily create a constitutional mandate for everybody else, but they did that. And uh, most people expected it to not survive any further review And so there was a real push by a whole lot of activists in Detroit and other places to try to get the governor to go ahead and settle it so that that moment in time could be enshrined in um, law. And so she did. Um, There was a $270,000 payout and I believe $2.7 million going towards Detroit public schools um, that is guaranteed. And then there were some some committee commissions that were set up by the governor to begin exploring what needs to happen next and i believe there's another 94 million dollars that the legislature is being asked to pay um, in addition to what the governor or as part of the um the the, um payout to the the um the city of detroit for a neglect um no other school districts got it and so i know there has been arguments on both sides i think Stephen and i found ourselves on both sides of the issue um, when it first got announced.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, I covered the Supreme Court and federal courts for five years from 2002 to 2007. So I'm used to looking at through these things and seeing what they mean from a legal perspective. And I was really disappointed in the appeals court ruling. Um, I thought, uh, you know, the strongest claim they ever had uh, in this case was uh, the equal protection uh, argument mm. that People in Detroit, uh, kids in Detroit are treated differently and uh, unconstitutionally different um, uh, because they are black kids. They are African-American kids overwhelmingly. I think that is the case that you, you have to make or uh, want to make. on mm-hmm. Detroit children And the court was really uh, unequivocal in rejecting that claim right. um, and then said, well, this other claim, which is about a right to literacy, which does not have any federal precedent behind it. The court has mm-hmm. never really ruled about this. The high court hasn't ruled about this. They've said a couple things uh, about it, but they've never really established a precedent. They said, go ahead and try that at the district court level. And so my concern was that the district court would have a very easy time of uh, uh, dismissing it, even if you held a trial, right? And, uh, just because the, the, the precedents weren't there. Um, I, I, I do think it is important that the panel at the Sixth Circuit said they think there is a constitutional uh, right to some basic education or literacy or whatever you, however you want to qualify that. And that maybe gives a little bit of a lift to further litigation. Um, but I'm actually really happy with the settlement. I think, I think that was the right thing to do. I think this would have been uh, a very hard fight. Through the rest of the courts, if it had come back to the district court or gone on mm-hmm. to the full panel at the Sixth Circuit, uh, I don't think I don't think we would have had a favorable outcome. Um, right. And the settlement is a favorable outcome. The, you know it, it, right. it gives us some relief. Uh, of course, I'm worried about the legislature and that $94 million. I don't know. I'm not holding my breath. Yeah, I was
0: going to ask about that. You know, the legislature uh wanted to uh file an appeal to reverse the 6th uh, circuit mm-hmm. court's decision. Okay. And now within the settlement, Governor Whitmer is going to ask them for 94 million dollars specific to Detroit Public Schools. Uh I mean, sh- should we be, you know, giddy and have our hopes mm-hmm. up or, you know, what? I mean, I
1: think that we have to look at all of these rights. Um battles as long battles, not short-term battles. We're not going to get justice in the short term. When you look at the, um, bat- the time frame, I believe Plessy versus Ferguson, which allowed for school segregation, was in 1998. 1996 to
0: 1998, I can't
1: remember which year. E- then, mm-hmm. 18. I'm sorry. I, like yeah, there I go, Missy. Yes, <laughs> Plessy versus Ferguson, really? <laughs> Since I was born, yeah, 1898. Thank you for that clarification. Um, but the actual Brown versus Board of Education, which overturned state sponsored segregation, was in 1954. Um, between 1898 and 1954, you had um, what 60 years of battling um, back and forth. About 60 years, um, you had Charles Houston and Clarence, um, not Clarence, oh my goodness, um, Thurgood Marshall. <laughs> um, Clarence Houston, Charles Houston and Thurgood Marshall fought the good fight to try to change points of view. And they did it through conservative um, presidencies and conservative Supreme Courts, and they did it through more liberal Supreme Courts. And actually it was not a liberal Supreme Court that decided on Brown versus Board of Education there were people whose minds were changed. And so I think that um, even when there's not a probable outcome of success, it makes sense to fight, to keep those issues alive and to let people know that we're still fighting for you and we're continuing to refine our arguments and refine our efforts to move it forward. So I was really excited when I met with the folks at public council in 2016 and heard their approach, even though literacy seemed like a reach. And I thought they should be arguing other things, but of course I'm not an attorney. Um, but I, I was really excited about that because I thought it's about time somebody took a legal standpoint. You know, and the Michigan Constitution doesn't demand, um, it, just, it requires every student getting up, um, an, an education, but there is no um, description of quality. The only time we come down on quality is when we have third grade reading bills and we demand quality and punish schools not providing quality or when the, the state decides to take over the school board functions because of poor quality, as they put it. But in terms of having the right to quality, we don't have it. So I was excited.
0: Yeah, I, you know, it, I, I'm i really interested. And before we move on, I just want to make sure that we overstate what this looks like for Detroiters um, and Detroit uh, students in terms of what the settlement allows for. Uh, there will be a uh, a creation of two task forces, uh, the Detroit Literacy Equity Task Force. We got a ton of task forces on everything. And the Detroit Educational uh, Policy Committee, both to make long-term recommendations that will improve education in Detroit. I'm really interested in just how all of that will show up on the streets um, and in the schools.
1: Now, um, Stephen, you may know this, is there um, adequacy funding that a state panel has already recommended to the Michigan legislature? Don't we already have some very clear and specific recommendations that could be adopted?
2: Yeah, so uh, a few years ago, uh, there there was another task force uh, that looked at funding uh, across all of the districts in in Michigan. And instead of asking uh, the question, what's equal, what would be equal funding? Mm they looked at what would be equitable funding, which is a really mm-hmm. different lens to put on it. And what they said was that in order for, uh, for kids in districts like Detroit, for instance, where you have this overwhelming concentration of, of poverty and, and historic systemic racism and mm-hmm. all kinds of things that, that make it more, much more difficult uh, to make sure that kids are learning, uh, you need to spend more money. Uh, you need to spend more money per pupil every year um, to make them equal to uh, kids from much more privileged backgrounds, kids who don't have those kinds of uh, those hurdles in front of them. And and that was a huge finding. Uh, of course, we, we live in a state where, uh, you know, the legislature has been controlled by the Republican Party for some time, and it's just not—it's just not likely that they're going to do very much with it. But you know, uh, if you look at some other states, um, states that are lapping us right now in terms of outcome, mm-hmm. that's right. Um, they've done this. Massachusetts is the is the exactly. probably the best example where they spend a lot more per student right now in the city of Boston than they do in uh, in wealthy suburbs, and. Here's the the outcome that I love to always kind of repeat. Kids in Boston are doing better on tests and grades and college entrance and graduation than kids in the wealthy districts in Michigan. So it's not just that they're outperforming their counterparts in urban districts, they are Mm -hmm. performing at or above the level uh, of kids who don't have those kinds of uh, those kinds of impediments in front of them. So it's a real testament to the idea that money matters, and if you spend money in the right way, you get outcomes. Uh, uh, but we we're gonna have to wait a long time, I think, in Michigan, to to have that experiment take place because of who's in charge.
1: Well, and also because I'm really excited about um, Bridge Detroit, and I'm. I can't wait to get to this later because um, people, even Democrats, even Detroiters, have bought into the myth that money doesn't matter. Um, you know, oh, well, money doesn't change everything. You can't throw money down. And I've heard advocates and good people um, repeating that mythology because it's been, if you say, I'll tell a lie often enough, people start believing it even after Proposal A school funding was never equalized in Michigan. You had districts that always had more money, That's right. t- treated as whole harmless districts and they were allowed to generate more money from local taxation, as well as getting money from the state because what Proposal A does is not only restricts what the state is gonna spend, but also what school districts are allowed to generate through local taxation. Mm-hmm. So um, Bridge Detroit, I think has the capacity to tell a real story and to bring those truths forward so that when you start changing local minds, when people know more, they start demanding more.
0: Catherine, I wanted to bring you in on this in case you had a reaction to uh, the governor settling this case.
3: Uh, I mean, you know, the, the school, um, the, what's been going on in Detroit public schools has been going on for a long time. And I think, you know, Stephen hit. you know, a really important point, you know, in the sense of, you know, what is equitable for Detroit children, Detroit's children. Um, This won't go very far, I think, in terms of actually helping (laughs) Detroit's uh, students, but I do think, um, you know, it's an important step forward. I think, you know, you you still like one of the points in the uh, lawsuit was the poor building conditions. And, you know, we know that this infrastructure issue in Detroit public schools is an ongoing issue. It will continue to be, um, and it's still kind of an outstanding question on how, you know, how will we really, how will we really create a funding system situation that can support Detroit schools?
0: Yeah, I like I like the delineation of equal uh, versus equitable. I'm glad that Stephen brought that in. Uh, fresh off the press, Duggan taps DMC's Conrad Mallet as Detroit deputy mayor. Kurt Nagel. And Chad Live and good at Cranes is reporting. Now, I thought that this was very interesting when this news broke um, at the end of last week. Conrad, of course, comes from uh, the Detroit uh, Medical Center. Uh, he had a chief position at the Medical Center, but before that, he was running uh, Sinai Grace Hospital. Uh, Detroit is uh, a place where the effects of COVID-19 have been exacerbated. So I'm, you know, it, it's, it's sort of shocking to me uh, that uh, we will ha- now have two deputy mayors. I don't remember, I don't, I'm not sure if I've ever known Detroit to have two deputy mayors. Yeah. James Craig will keep his position as deputy mayor. And I'm wondering like what the charter has to say about this, the powers, the delineation of powers between uh, the deputies And who will assume power? I think uh, the Crane's article mentions that if uh, Mayor Duggan is uh, unavailable, then power is going to James Craig. I mean, like, what do do y'all think about this? This is interesting to me.
1: My first thought is old school, right? So you had Ike McKinnon, who was deputy mayor, and you had Charlie Beckham, who was not deputy mayor, but who was sort of like the mayor's consigliere. And you had,
2: um, (laughs) you know, that's my mom's little brother. (laughs) Is it? Yes.
1: Yes. (laughs) You know, but, but, you know, I think that, um, that he brings a lot of strength and a lot of power to the mayor and brought a lot of influence so that the mayor could influence groups of people outside of his normal uh, reference group. Um, What I don't see is now you're bringing in Comrade Mallet, and Comrade Mallet, unlike those two that I just mentioned, doesn't really to me have the Detroit neighborhood connections that a deputy mayor might be of use to uh, Mayor Duggan. So I don't really see him being able to play a role in addressing some of the grassroots organizing I see rising up and um, Chief Craig certainly can't do it. I would hope that he would um, bring on somebody who had the same character as some of the people who have since left his administration so that he had more reach inside the community.
0: Well, he's supposed to be driving the overall health response of the city of Detroit um, on on the public safety side as well. Um, He's he's been a health professional, at least for the last decade. I'm just wondering now, we're paying, so uh, the arrangement with Chief Craig his police chief salary remained the same. Like, did he ever, did he get a raise when he was appointed deputy mayor or is that salary like earmarked? And now we are now going to be paying a new salary for this position. You know, I'm not. I don't know. I don't remember. Mm. But you know,
1: there's health and then there's social determinants of health and we don't necessarily need a healthcare professional addressing the problems in Detroit. Um, I don't think that the problems in Detroit in terms of COVID-19 were completely a healthcare system breakdown, although we did have breakdowns in that because our systems are underinvested in neighborhoods. There's not a single hospital on the East side of Detroit that remains open. And in Northwest Detroit, you can blame Sinai Grace, but the reality is we don't have enough hospital beds in Northwest Detroit to accommodate the needs of the community there so that's a system issue but you also have the social determinants of health whatever they may be whether it is homelessness joblessness um you know the lack of access to water and the disengagement and concentration of poverty issues that are coming up in city council um forums as they're coming up in the charter commission forums and um you know all of the um anger about the tax reclosures all of that so I really think that in addition to somebody who can lead the city in addressing health care system reform, we need somebody who can lead the city in addressing some of these other issues.
0: Yeah, I I, I, yeah,
1: Catherine.
3: I, I would say, I think it it's looks like, I mean, from the outside, I would say it seems like Mayor Duggan is um, really making a move to strengthen his uh, management team. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Conrad Malin has a lot of years as a healthcare, a lot of experience as a healthcare executive in government. Um, you know, with you know an election like looming, I think the city is facing a lot. Is going to face a lot of like really real crisis, from budget crisis to possible cuts in services, and. You know, I think a political strategist with, you know, long history in the city, I think I would say that, you know, Mayor Duggan is really thinking about, you know, how to, how does Detroit manage its way out of this situation? And also, you know, someone who comes from healthcare. you know, as the city emerges from a pandemic, you know, what does this look like? All right.
1: I don't doubt that. I just wonder if he's the right person for that role. I'm sure it's a political fix. I just remember what was going on right before COVID-19 happened. And I think that the challenges we face are a lot different than the city governmental leadership is prepared to address. So we'll see.
0: Yeah, Donna, I, I, I think I agree with the point that you bring up about social determinants of health. And I know that there are many folks on the ground uh, who who look at that through a lens of community-based participatory research, who are in the neighborhoods talking to folks and you know drawing and getting this research firsthand and drawing uh, conclusions based off of that research. Mm-hmm. One of the things that you know I I would like to see is someone with that uh, that root and that ear, that bridge to community. Um, and that knowledge base gleaned from uh, firsthand research uh, occupy this position if it is a position that is going to be squarely focused on the city's health response. I know of groups that have been studying asthma in the city of Detroit for years, uh, type two diabetes and uh, uh, obesity mm-hmm. in Detroit for years through many different lenses, including the lens of race. We are a majority Black city. I just, I I, I hope that uh, someone uh, can help be that bridge. Uh, you know, I think uh, Ayanna Presley says the people closest to the problem should be the people closest to power. That's and right. So, uh you know, your new deputy mayor, uh, Conrad Mallet, will have an annual salary of $162,000. Cranes is reporting, is actually the salary of a position vacated by Bethany Malitz, who was the chief administrative officer uh, for the Duggan administration. So, so I mean,
2: there, there's a lot here that just is very familiar, right? Um, uh, Mike Duggan is nothing if not. Um, a very predictable political actor, uh, right. and a predictable manager, right? Uh, and and mm-hmm. there's places where that works really well and, and, and has brought us great results. And there's other places where you're like, ah, uh, quit doing the same thing over and over. Yeah. Um, uh, but, you know, Conrad Mallet is, is one of his guys, right? right. This mm-hmm. is somebody he's worked with uh, w- it really intensely and in many different ways. Uh, and it's someone he trusts. Uh, it's also somebody with a very good record of, uh, as Catherine was was talking about, management. Right, uh, mm-hmm. can actually uh, help with some of the, the the managerial challenges that I feel like they've had down at City Hall. Uh, and so, you know, when when things get tight or desperate or or, or you feel a little panicky, you know, we all reach for comfort, right? That's we share true. the thing that we know is gonna work. Yeah. Uh, so the mayor reaches for Conrad. Um, uh, mm-hmm. I, I don't think it's a bad choice. I, I mean, I, I actually think quite a bit of Conrad as, as somebody who's got a lot of accomplishment yeah. to his name. I do think that it's worth asking whether he can help with these other issues that the administration has in terms of connecting. Reconnecting with Detroiters, who uh, you know, I think Detroiters are getting a little bit of dug-in fatigue in some in some cases, yeah. right? Uh, that mm-hmm. happened, You know, you're mayor for a while. People expect you to perform, and when you don't, in every way, they get they get antsy. Uh, I don't know how Conrad helps with that. The other dimension, though, I would bring up is is the the question of you know, succession. And yeah, that's that what happens I think. after Mike Duggan is mayor. I mean, I think there's no secret that if Joe Biden wins the presidential election in November, Mike Duggan will be on a lot of lists for, for jobs in Washington. Now, does he take those? Does he get them off? Does he get offered them? Who knows? But if he were to leave, I think he's got to start thinking about what what would come next? And we've got some movement below him in terms of uh, the city charter. Uh, the council president says she's running for Congress uh, against Rashida Tlaib. Who knows, does she win that? And, and then Mary Sheffield becomes council president. Um, you know, I, I don't know how all those things figure into his thinking, but they do, right? Mm-hmm. No, they do. We know he's uh, he's thinking about what would, what would come behind him, and and you know, Conrad is not a young man, of course. <laughs> maybe maybe that's not even on his radar. <laughs> but who knows? I mean, maybe this is a move to try to shore up some of uh, the administrative strength that that you would need to try to hold things together. Um, uh, you know, if the if the mayor went off to do something else, or maybe doesn't even run uh, for reelection next year. Hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: I definitely think he's building a
2: bench.
1: Yeah, well, that that succession question is very interesting and does make a lot of sense. I know some people have also bandied that about. Mm -hmm. And and it does make sense that you go with people you feel comfortable with and people you trust when you feel like you are under so much scrutiny and facing really tough risks. So I just hope it works out. You know, um, I always wish for success for the mayor because um, it really does benefit the rest of the community if the mayor succeeds. And so I'm going to be hopeful that um, what Comrade Bell- Mallet brings is that special sauce that helps us turn a corner. Uh, but I do have some skepticism.
0: <laughs> uh, every Detroiter got skepticism. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that wraps up uh, the Fresh Off the Press segment. If you have stories or pieces that you want us to cover, uh, email us at authenticallydetroit at gmail.com or hit us up on our socials on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at authentically Detroit. Now, on to our discussion for the day, we're discussing Bridge Detroit, a new yes. journalism and engagement organization in town. <laughs> There's a couple of yes. people here
2: who have something to
0: do with it, I don't know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think it's, it's my turn to take over question because everybody on this call except for me is Bridge Detroit, right? That's right. Um, so I'm, I'm really excited about Bridge Detroit actually um, coming to Detroit. Again, because we have not had a high-quality Detroit um, weekly. Or how, how how often will you publish? By the way, will it be weekly, daily?
2: We, we were just having a, a long discussion about that right before. <laughs> <laughs> not sure yet. It's really going to depend on how much uh, we can generate early on. But ultimately, I think we'd like to be every day, right? Okay. Uh, Well, that's
1: even better because we've never had a Detroit Daily that I can think of that's African American centered or Detroit centered um, because I'm sure that it will just not just be Black voices in Detroit. Uh, But, Stephen, let's start with you. Um, Can you give us your backstory and what prompted you to start something new as if you weren't already busy enough?
0: Um, (laughs) How many jobs does this man have? Right,
2: exactly.
0: (laughs) happy unless I have
2: three or more jobs.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's
2: the Detroit hustle. Right, exactly. <laughs> so i really a Detroiter. Um, yeah, so I mean, I, I have been a journalist, a professional journalist for, okay, well, we won't talk about how many years, but it's coming up on, uh, it's coming up on 30. Uh,
0: yeah.
2: I was born in the city, of course, and grew up here and uh, went off to school at the University of Michigan, uh, and then started my work as a journalist um, and pretty quickly came home to Detroit uh, in the mid 90s. Uh, worked here for a bit and then there was this awful newspaper strike that happened that sent people all over the world. And uh, I left uh, went to Chicago and then to Baltimore and then to Washington and then came back home in uh, 2007 back to the Free Press uh, which is where I had been an intern uh, and had worked uh, briefly. Uh, as a young young person, I've been back since then. Um, you know, uh, the city's journalism ecosystem is really different today than it was just twelve years ago when I when I got home. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there there are a lot more struggles for news organizations. Uh, we've lost uh, a lot of uh, information sources for Detroiters. Uh, and so Bridge Detroit really is an effort to try to shore that back up, to try to not just um, add to uh, the voices out there, but help uh, bring the voices that we have together and have them work collaboratively, have them working uh, specifically to, to try to, to try to address the things that uh, Detroiters themselves say are really important um, and so We've been working for about a year and a half on this plan and wow. uh, at the center of it is this idea of engaging with Detroiters, not, not periodically, but consistently to, to try to I help uh, identify the things that they need to know and uh, the, the things that they, uh, that they want to help them uh, sort through their civic lives in this city. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're developing a model to do that. And we're building a newsroom around that idea. And then I went out and found these spectacular other Detroiters uh, mm-hmm. who are joining me uh, <laughs> to do the work.
1: <laughs>
2: Two of them are sitting here. Right. With
1: I know, right? So I'm going to ask um, Catherine and Orlando about their journeys. Um, Catherine, what got you... Um, Can you tell us a little bit about your journey and um, look, you went through Michigan Citizen, hip hop, corporate America, and now nonprofit journalism. And how did you get here? Why are you here?
3: (laughs) Well, um, my parents started the Michigan Citizen newspaper on our dining room table. Um, I can remember being a kid under the table and my mom, my sister pointing out to my parents that the, you know, the roof was leaking and she said, you know, this is, It's raining on your business. So (laughs) my parents uh, started the Michigan Citizen during the second wave of um, Black newspapers. So the first wave I talk a lot about, you know, uh, a lot of those papers were founded through the Great Migration and really kind of documented that uh, transition from the North to the South. The second wave of Black papers came about in the 70s. Um, They were more activists more nationalist, rooted in um, black arts culture, um, a bit more radical. Um, So the Michigan Citizen was founded um, from that perspective. You know, it was also, you know, we believe very much in getting our news from the people, from community meetings, from black clubs, your sources, are residents and citizens, you know, they aren't, you know, you don't get a lead from a press release or, a you know, a spokesperson. So the Michigan citizen and growing up, um, in that environment really helped inform, you know, how I thought about media, um, which kind of led me to New York. I loved hip hop, you know, when I was in high school. Um, I thought that those artists and entrepreneurs were the people who are really, um, kind of defining a new everything. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to participate. So got involved in the 90s, um, worked during a time when there was an unprecedented really amount of um, investment that went into black people of color, urban lifestyle entities. And I mean, I just loved it. It was like a really vibrant, amazing time. And that group and that moment they also um they also kind of did news making and content making a bit differently their approach their attitude um you know i have always felt like i've been involved in media um at moments when um people of color were kind of taking the narrative back
0: Yeah, And
3: I'm always really proud of that. And so that's, you know, one of the things I think we really have the opportunity to do um, at Bridge Detroit. So that's, you know, I mean, I was corporate for a while. I worked with uh, the Quicken Loans Community Fund, um, Bedrock and the Rock family of companies um, as a communication strategist to kind of help the family of companies kind of connect with the city and message to the city but i think this bridge opportunity and the idea really the opportunity to create an outlet that serves the city and its residents was just i mean that's just it's beyond exciting
1: wow. so uh orlando <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> yeah. you went to college at eastern and you got your journalism degree and then you ended up at Eastside Community Network for over seven years, and somehow you found your way back to um, to journalism. Can you explain why you left me? No, I'm just <laughs>
0: <laughs> I left because Stephen asked me to. It. No, I know,
1: right? <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't that easy? <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh no! It, it it definitely wasn't an easy, an easy decision. What's so funny is I, <laughs> you you explained the journey really quite well. Uh, you know, graduating from school and coming back home, wanting to work at home with a degree from Little Eastern Michigan University. Nobody in Detroit was hiring a rookie, um, in in mainstream media and some of the publications that I grew up wanting to work for. Or, grew up reading and things of that sort. So Maggie hired me at Warren Connor and I was on ice that very first year. I thought every day I came in, I'm like, this is the day I'm going to get fired <laughs> I had a big learning curve, uh, but she continued to uh, invest and teach. And uh, that tradition continued when Donna came in as CEO at ECN in 2016. Um, and so I would say that the work, Uh, that Maggie and the work that Donna has allowed me to do and lead and partake in has brought me full circle to this moment. It's only because of my work on the east side where other opportunities uh, begin to open up, where people begin to notice who I am and what my skill set was. In 2018, I took over as host of Urban Consulate in Detroit from Chase Cantrell. And that opened up another can of worms. Uh, Mildred Gaddis, a longtime mentor of mine, gifted me my own segment on her uh, radio show at uh, 105.9 FM. And so the work literally brought me back here. So uh, my personal mission is to lend platform for underrepresented underrepresented voices to express their power, to express and tell their stories. Going back to what Catherine was talking about, narrative power. Uh, Marlo always talked about narrative power, right? Um, and I I internalized that. And so when I got back from GMF, I didn't know what was going to happen. Um, and uh, I sat down with Steven, and he talked about this. And talked about the position of engagement director. And for me, it was the perfect convergence of my love for community engagement development and my affinity for storytelling and media. And so it just it just sort of happened. It wasn't easy to leave you, Donna. And I haven't technically um, left. Yeah,
1: it. you know, I'm just teasing you. Yeah. Because you can't hide from your calling, right? When um when when there's a calling on you, you've got to follow that. And yeah. nobody should try to stand in the way because that's not um you know come on that's that'll put you in a spiritually bad place but I know.
0: And you did um, let me tell you i cried i'm like uh, <laughs> and she was like stop it stop crying you're gonna do this and wipe your face before you leave my office i don't want people thinking i cussed you out i mean it was, it was, <laughs> right it was yeah just, it
1: was like i was like oh my goodness you're ruining my reputation around here <laughs> but um <laughs> you know i think right now one of the things that comes to mind is that we live in an information age and um I used to think that was a good thing that people had access to just about every type of information they wanted. Um, I go out there on the World Wide web and I read and I see a lot of things. I learn a lot of things just through um, personal research on um, one of my nicknames is Google. So um, you can imagine how that works. Somebody tells me something and I've tried to look it up and see if they're telling me the truth and um, do I need to contradict them all the way through grad school. I was like the annoying classmate. And so, you know, you have that, at your fingertips right now. But the the dark side of the information age is everybody thinks they know stuff that they don't know. And anybody can be a scientist, anybody can have information and people just throw around unfactual information all of the time. And um, I think that it's great because we've loosened up standards such that newsrooms cannot control what people know. But we've loosened them up so much that sometimes what people know has no bearing on the truth. And um, so I'm wondering how you see yourselves trying to corral in some of that energy to know things and be on top of things so that what we're acting on is actual factual information, Mm -hmm. or is that an important part of your work?
2: Well, I'd say it is the most important part of any journalist's work, right? Uh, uh, And uh, it's not just a question of, you know as you point out making sure that that you have the right information or factual information it's making sure that your audience uh understands that it's factual information and not made up or 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 dreamed up um i, I think one of the things that um that drives bridge to and one of the things that drove me in in making the hires that we did uh, and designing uh, the organization the way we did w- was really to try to be sure that um, that we could build that connection with Detroiters right I mean that is a question of trust um, that you're talking about there and and that trust can only really come from authentic relationships right um, uh, it can't you can't make it up you can't uh you, you can't sort of paper it over, and so when I was thinking of the people that I thought we needed um, to help build this and and build it in that way, I was thinking of people who had that relationship already that's
1: right that's right? right
2: uh not people who who would have to build it or learn it or, uh or start from scratch, but people who had done it for you know, preferably a really long time. Um, and if you think about just the two we have here, uh, Catherine and Orlando, think of how different their experiences are, but how mm-hmm. relevant both of them are to that, right. Order, right? They both have this really, really deep connection to, uh, to a community, to the community, uh, to, to Detroiters uh, and their work so far, has been about being uh, uh, in that, that kind of authentic relationship with, with Detroiters. And so, um, you know, I think we start with a little bit of an advantage in that way, in that um, that trust is gonna, is gonna be there in, with an awful lot of people. Those relationships are gonna be there with uh, an awful lot of people. And um, uh, we get to start by saying, okay, you know us, you know what we're about now tell us what we need to tell you Tell us what you need to know tell us the things that you don't feel like you're getting perhaps from from other sources uh, so I mean there's a in my mind it puts us on second base rather than you know at the plate trying to get on base it really does give us a head start that uh, that I wouldn't have been able to imagine if we hadn't gone and been able to convince people like Catherine in Orlando to be part of it.
1: Right. You know, I mean, I think of how many times have I seen Orlando have to talk somebody out of a misinformed belief um, (laughs) when they call up upset about something and, you know, and or they call him on the holidays to check something I said and make sure I was telling the truth (laughs) or they heard from another staff person. This happened, hasn't it, Orlando?
0: Oh, yes. Uh, (laughs) So many times, even during Christmas. Yeah. right. But, you know, I would say that uh, I think that that level of comfort that residents have uh, with with the folks on staff, I think is is a, a plus for the publication. I have no residents have no qualms with telling me what they need and what they're not getting. Um, And so as we build out this model that Steven is talking about, it's actually called the community priorities model. Um, We're doing that with residents. We essentially want to shift the way residents interact with news organizations. And so um, I had some preliminary ideas as to what that would look like. And then I realized, like, I should not come to the table with any preconceived notions. I need to talk to the residents. The residents will tell me. Uh, how th- what this should look like and how it should be built. So I'm excited to get to work. Uh, our first focus group is with East Eastside Community Network residents. So I'm excited.
1: We're excited too. Catherine, your family about over 40 years ago um, got into this business or, uh, of trying to figure this stuff out, right? How to make stories relevant to Detroiters during another period of activism that kind of got lost in the 80s. Can you talk about that and how um, you guys reached out and changed minds? Well, I mean, I think I think
3: one thing and I'm one thing that's super important about um journalists and outlets, media outlets is you know, we also have the ability to kind of um Um, help give a fuller, um, a fuller picture of history. So, you know, one of the things that, you know, I'm always particularly proud of, if there's, you know, a, a historian or someone who's looking to tell the story of Detroit during certain years, one thing that media outlets are able to do, and journalists are able to do by documenting, by Um, listening to residents by responding so maybe you know residents give us the ideas they tell us what um, what is an issue in their community and we take our skills and ability and and tell their story you know we call you know the mayor's office or the schools and we check you know to find out what's true and what's not and we put it all together but what it ultimately does is help tell a different story about the city so you know, during those years of emergency management or bankruptcy, one of the things I'm really proud about, or some of the early times of like the water shutoffs, the Michigan citizen was there to say, no, there were people and community groups who were against this, who talked about this, who protested this in a really early way and critiqued these policies. So one of the thing, one of those like, like really wonderful aspects about being in media is to be able to like change the record, especially change the record when it comes to the lives and the experiences of uh, poor people, of people of color, of working people, of black people. That, that ability is wonderful. So, I mean, that's the one thing that I think I'm really excited about um, with uh, Bridge Detroit. Yeah.
1: You know, one thing that um, that needs a narrative redo, in my opinion, is all the conversation around COVID-19 and prevention. Like, we keep telling people that we want them to flatten the curve, and I don't know anybody who is motivated by flattening curves, right? Um, It's a scientific description of a public health, um, you know... (laughs) need or process that has nothing to do with the lived experience of people. And then when you see people not flattening the curves, it's like, oh, the curve isn't flattened. Is the curve flattened? How do we know it's flat? And really what we're trying to do is save lives. And I think if we have realistic conversations about what that means and how we save lives, people will comply better than when we have these abstract conversations about curve flattening. I don't know who decided that was going to be the way we talk to everybody all of the time. Huh. I'm wondering if you took control of the narrative, how would you describe what we need to do right now
2: That's really interesting. Um, I mean, I think saving lives is where you start but but one of the things that I think uh, is ha- has been missing from the narrative is um, that that the lives of people in the city are worth saving
0: yeah mm-hmm.
2: that um and i mean I mean that both in, in an external messaging sense and an internal one um, you know i I, I think uh, it can be difficult sometimes to to get people to recognize that um, that public health danger uh, um, matters to them and matters to their families and matters to their community because the external message often is that it doesn't. Uh, mm-hmm. And you think about some of the reactions that we hear right now to the tremendous toll that this is taking in the city. I mean, just the, the incredible loss that we've been suffering over and over again. The external message is, well, that's unfortunate, but we have these other things that are just as important. And right. we deal with those too. I think it's really easy to see people internalize that message in a, in a very dangerous way. Um, and not take it as seriously and and some of the things that we've seen uh, about people not getting that message about flattening the curve or social distancing or all these other things have their roots in that long history of devaluation of their lives that that they've been told over and over again that they don't matter that much um, uh, and, and i think you know a voice like Bridge detroit has the opportunity to try to reverse that narrative, to try to place a higher value uh, on each of those lives.
1: So we started out our conversation talking a little bit about education. And sometimes I'm made aware of how little um, the the science performance of students in the the state of Michigan and a lot of urban areas where people really don't understand science all that well. Do people understand the difference between a bacteria and a virus, what a virus is? And how viruses get passed on. We did a community meeting where we had a virologist come on and just explain the basics of this is what a virus is, this is what a coronavirus is, this is why it's not the same coronavirus as on your Lysol bottle and begin answering questions. And if you don't do that, then people are susceptible to the pandemic video and also um, to all of this ridiculous Hmm. conversation about 5G. That they carry on on their 5g phones you know i think that at some point we part of the narrative also has to be a willingness to stop and explain things don't you
3: i would be interested um i mean and also really looking at and thinking about detroit was hit so hard and it was hit so quickly i mean If you look at the way, um, you know, people in other parts of the state have responded, I I think they've kind of also struggled with absorbing the science and uh, metrics of this. But I'd be also really interested if you, I think Detroit and Detroiters really quickly identified, you know, that this was serious. I mean, if you looked at how behavior changed, I mean, there were videos of people doing certain things, but I would argue, and I think it'd be interesting to look at how quickly Detroiters did absorb the information about this and what Detroiters did do through this. I mean, if you saw social media and if you, you know, if you were kind of looking at, you know, the way that Detroiters were wearing masks, their, their feelings about being mostly, you know, being essential workers. I think Detroiters have been very kind of engaged in this in a way that, people outside the city haven't. And I think that is a story that really needs to be told.
1: Right, but I I agree with you. I think Detroiters have largely been compliant to the expectations, but there are groups of Detroiters who are not, who are resistant to that and who pass on certain messaging. And you know, how many people I've, I've talked to who have relatives who are young, who come into their homes and go out and hang out with their friends and come into their homes. I have a friend who had to tell her daughter you can't come home because I have health risks and you hanging out places me my life in danger. And I don't think that young woman had any intention. I think that we really have to understand that sometimes when you understand something better, people, a certain type of person will comply more readily when they understand something better. Yeah. And it's go
0: on. I was just going to say I think that comes from talking with folks like I I would infer that uh, to answer your questions that Detroiters uh, understand uh, in the simplest form the science around this but we don't really know how that science is guiding their behavior unless we ask them and I think that's the that's the piece Mm -hmm. and that's the story that uh, you know we we want to tell, and that's the kind of uh, community engagement model that we want to even begin to crystallize uh, what what is contributing to your behavior that what cause you to stay in or what cause you to seem to flippantly not obey uh, the stay at home order. Uh, there are numerous factors other than the science of it um, that contributes to people's behavior every day and that's that's what we want to ask
1: well absolutely we want to know that but i've just heard so many competing theories about somebody said put wearing a mask places you more in danger this one guy was on social media saying he knew how to cure cancer and i really stopped arguing with him because if you know how to cure cancer who am i to throw something out but, you know, there's a lot of competing information that, um, you know, a uh, trusted friend sends me something about pandemic, and I'm having, to, yes, disinformation, exactly. And that's what it is. And, so and that disinformation is, is partly informed by a lack of understanding.
0: Therein yeah. lies the, the delineation, right? Um uh, some Some folks know some folks take in the disinformation and internalize it and think it 's true, and so, as a factual news organization, I think the narrative has to always be truth <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> truth I, of an education oh yeah that's yeah, but I hear you I,
1: I would just say truth and explanation because sometimes people don't start with the baseline information. Um, I want to talk about um, Bridge Detroit though, and how is bridge detroit? different than Bridge Magazine, than the Detroit Free Press, Outlier Media, and by some of the other media that you see right now?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, So the first way it's different is uh, take a look at the staff that you have who are going to be working on on Bridge Detroit. Uh, Like I said, I've been part of the journalism business for almost 30 years now. And this will be the first staff I've worked on that was absolutely representative of the city in which I live, um, where uh, the people that we've hired are essentially the people who live here. Um, And that sounds easy, uh, but if it were that easy, you'd see a lot of other people doing it, I think. (laughs) I think it's deliberate, set of decisions and actions uh, to do that. So I think that is one of the most important reasons or ways it's different. Um, the other the other important way it's different is that, uh, so in my entire career in journalism, we've always been talking about engagement, right? Engagement mm-hmm. with our readers or our listeners or our viewers. Um, and we typically, when we say that, when we uh, t- use that word, what we're talking about is how to engage those readers or listeners or viewers with our content, right? Mm -hmm. We want them to engage with us and what we're doing. Um, Bridge Detroit turns that on its head um, and says, uh, we're going to engage with Detroiters first, Mm -hmm. find out what is important to them, find out what challenges they have, and then create journalism that is responsive to it. Um, I mean, it's sort of a, a fundamentally different paradigm, I guess, than uh, than most other uh, than most other news organizations. Outlier, of course, is uh, is doing that now and creating uh, very responsive journalism uh, to Detroiters. Uh, we want to kind of grow the model that that they have and and create uh, more kinds of journalism, uh, more of it. Um, uh, but, but be as responsive uh, as, as they are. Um, you know, our relationship to Bridge Magazine, which uh, is a publication that's been around for about a decade, uh, maybe a little longer, uh, is that we will both be published by the Center for Michigan, which owns Bridge Magazine, uh, which means all of the business operations uh, for Bridge Detroit will be the same as, as Bridge Magazine. It's actually an advantage that we have uh, when you create a startup, uh, the, the, the most difficult part of it really is the business end of it, you know, payroll yeah. and insurance and all that kind of stuff. Uh, we had all of that taken care of by the Center for Michigan, which was an enormous uh, contribution by them. Uh, but we also will have uh, the same kind of partnership with Bridge Magazine that we have with lots of other uh news organizations uh, there will be some shared content between us there will be some shared effort between us to create content and distribute it um, uh, it's kind of uh it's not that different from the uh, east Side community network in that way that uh, there are spaces in which we want to share um share the work and and share the distribution of uh of the work um, but I'm curious. Orlando and Catherine think is different. I mean, they're they're coming to this new as well. What's different about this? Why do you, why do you want to do it? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I'll, I'll go ahead while while Catherine while Catherine uh, prepares what she wants to say. I think you know uh, the the intention of changing the way news organizations interact with citizens in cities um, and the way uh, residents interact with news organizations um, struck me. I absolutely love that in terms of residents being able to build uh, the reporting priorities of a news organization. I think that's dope. The other, the other dope thing is Stephen said something. He said the newsroom is reflective of the demographical makeup in the city, which means it's ma- it's majority black, and I love that. I love that. Um, it's it's so um, authentically Detroit. Um, Detroiters uh, by Detroiters for Detroiters, and uh, for me to be able to. Um, sort of, you know, serve serve on a team uh, like this is a magnificent honor. Um, we aren't the gatekeepers of the information. We are uh, relaying the information that Detroiters say that they need and want. And for me, that's the game changer.
3: I think it's such an important um, service to... Um because it, it really is a service to provide news and information to a community, especially a community that has been underserved and you know often not really believed or um, um, you know kind of the community's perspective has often been um, discounted, not believed, not listened to um, you know media has, I think, historically kind of played this role in Detroit where it has, um, you know, spoken over Detroit and said, no, this is your problem. This is what you're facing. And I think the opportunity to kind of take that back and serve residents and citizens by uh, really kind of lifting up these stories, I, that's why I'm with I'm Richie Detroit. Wow, that's awesome.
1: So uh, what is the role of the content Partners and specifically the role of eSight Community Network, which you just referenced, um, Stephen? How do you see that working?
2: Um, uh, so we, um, from the beginning, thought that the best way to do uh, the journalism that we want to do is not to do it alone, uh, but to do it with, with other people who share uh, you know, the values that we have and, and the approach and, and want to be part of it. Uh, in a lot of instances, that means working with other journalism organizations that are doing, uh, you know, uh, various kinds of, producing various kinds of content. So we have lots of partnerships with, with existing journalism organizations. The ones that I also work for, WDET and Detroit Public Television, uh, Bridge Michigan, the Detroit Free Press. Uh, uh, we've got a long list actually of, of partners that we've started to form partnerships with. But I also was really uh, uh, really motivated by the idea that we should have partnerships with community organizations as well, uh, because that community um, uh, part of this is is so much a part of what we're trying to do. It didn't make sense to just report on community organizations or, or uh, do engagement activities with them, but to make them part of the content. Um, and so, you know, you guys have been doing Authentically Detroit for a year now, I believe. Um, mm-hmm. I was one of the first people Listening, uh, and I certainly was one of the most excited people about the content, uh, which, which,
0: which is crazy to me, by the way. And I think I told him that, like, that's crazy. Right. And
2: right. I said, I said, I want that. I want, I want that to be part of what we do. I want to find out how we can work with uh, with ECN. Uh, on this content, because I think it's really good. I think it's exactly in the wheelhouse of what we're trying to create. Uh, so there should be a partnership there. And in fact, my first conversation with Orlando about this was about Authentically Detroit. I said, I want to work together on this. Uh, and then he said, well, who's going to be your engagement director? <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, <laughs> you could do that too. <laughs> um, <Yes. laughs> but that would be... Uh, I think the idea, the possibilities for us here, like, uh, uh, you know, uh, working together to figure out uh, how to produce the content that you guys do here to make it uh, as powerful as we want to make it, to to take it to all the spaces that we could together. It was a real, uh, it was a real easy sell for me, uh, I thought the harder sell would be for you guys, who might say, "Well, no, this is ours. <laughs> you, can't, you can't be part of it." Um, but of course, you were very open, open to that. And and again, find me another news organization that's doing it that way. That's yeah. saying, "Let's work with the community organization um, that that produces this content to produce it together." Um, a lot of people would say that's breaking the rules, uh, but I keep saying, "Why do there have to be rules?" <laughs>
0: you can say that as a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist. You're the person to, bend right. to break those rules and keep making them up. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, for um, all of our guests now, Donna and I are uh, implementing like this new question, and we we started it last week. On our anniversary, and the answers both from Candace Fortman and Kat Stafford uh were poetic. And so we're wondering uh what ye, Catherine and Stephen, what your answer would be. And it simply is: what does it mean for you to be an authentic Detroiter? What does it mean for you to be an authentic Detroiter? It's a play on the show title. We get to <laughs> plug it in a little more, but we you know, we get to ask. ID uh, traders, this question. Um, and just in my short experience, um, it really, really elicited some powerful answers. And so I can't wait to hear from Stephen and Catherine. So whoever wants to go first.
2: <laughs> Do you want to go first? Or you want me to.
0: <laughs> so
3: you go first, Stephen.
2: <laughs> okay. I'll go first. Um, so that's an interesting question. Um, and I gotta say, it's not one I think a whole lot about. Um, uh, and part of the reason I don't think about it is, um, because I feel like, uh, you know, I've made choices, uh, that, that for me, um, were about being a Detroiter. I've made life choices that were about being a Detroiter. And, and so for me, um, you know the choices were made, and and I live with them. I live with them every day. And and the one that that I come back to all the time is the fact that you know uh, is that I did move away from Detroit. Um, you know I was 25 when uh, the newspaper strike uh, happened here, and um, and I had to go find work somewhere else. Um, and I was gone for for almost 12 well for 12 years. Um, and when I decided to come back, um, uh, you know there was an opportunity for me to come back, and that was important. But the other part of coming back for me was was deciding that this was the place that uh, that I could do the work that would matter to me the most, um, and it was the place where my work could matter the most to other people, uh, because it was home because uh, I, I had such a deep connection to, to not only the city but to the institutions here. Um, I, I said when I left Washington, um, you know, I'm, I'm going home because that's where my work will matter the most. Um, uh, and a lot of people, there were a lot of people who laughed uh, in Washington. There were a lot of people who, who made fun and said, "You're you're nuts." Uh, I was covering the, the Supreme Court for the second largest newspaper chain in the country at the time. And uh, people said, you're crazy to walk away from this. Um, and I said, no, I need to be at home. I need to be at home doing the work that matters. Um, and so for me, that choice, uh, you know, I would say I'm a Detroiter by birth and I didn't have anything to do with that. Um, <laughs> but I'm also a Detroiter by choice. Uh, mm. uh, I. I I choose to be here, uh, and i can 't always say that's uh, that that's something that makes me laugh or smile i mean there's times when it makes me really sad or or it's painful, um, but I embrace all of it it's it, it is the thing I needed to be doing um, and so I guess for me that that is a level of authenticity in that uh, it was, it was a willful choice on my part. Uh, I'm not here just by accident or by happenstance. I, I make that choice. I made that choice and I make it every day. Okay. Love it.
0: Thank you. All right. There.
3: Um, I think Detroit is a place um, where you will be checked you know, I think often, you know, you go out in this world and you have something in your mind about who you think you are, what you think you're going to do, or what you think is, you know, and a lot of times it's misguided, it's immature, it's, you know, the values aren't always there. But I think when you are in the city and of the city, you have people who on all different levels will, who will call you out about it and who will name it. And they do it in a range of ways. Like some can be, you know, hurtful and mean, and but some can be really lovely and, um, you know, a real opportunity for, for personal growth. I mean, you, I think about, you know, the different generations in the city and older Detroiters who will tell you why something is the way that it is and how it got here and what it meant. And I think It's just, you know, one of the things I love about being a Detroiter is, you know, people are always talking to you from all different walks of life, your peers, your, you know, people tell you why and how and tell you about yourself. It gives you this kind of awareness and thoughtfulness that um, I think is super important. Um, uh, So I think that kind of... um, you know, that that awareness is something that is really like authentically Detroit, which is why Detroiters, I think, create such great content, such great music, is because someone is oh. always like, yeah, that's not good, and they'll tell you, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or they'll say, no, actually, that really was really great, or did you know your mom used to do this, or your dad, or your grand?" I mean, it's just that, that, um, that experience, I think, is Authentically Detroit and is what makes me an authentic Detroiter because <laughs> I know I've been checked
0: before. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, uh, Steven Henderson and Katherine Kelly, thank you both so much for being our guest on Authentically Detroit today. If you have topics that you want discussed on authentically detroit you can hit us up on facebook twitter and instagram at authentically detroit or email us at authentically at gmail.com all right guys it is time oh, Randall,
1: one one question i think yeah. you forgot to mention something about the community advisory house yes so oh yeah, yeah. You- so
0: uh as we begin to uh put teeth Uh, to the community priorities model uh, as Steven mentioned, the engagement will have to be and will be constant. And one of the ways that we want to stay true to that is through uh, the community advisory council, which is made up of leaders of uh, foundations, nonprofit organizations, grassroots organizations, uh, uh, private corporations. Um, activists, it's it's a really a wide cadre of folks that we've been able to convince to uh, keep us honest um, in this journey. Uh, Donna uh, will be a member of the community uh, advisory council. And so um, as we continue to build out that model and launch, um, uh, the advisory council will sort of serve as ambassadors uh, for, for, for our priorities model ambassadors for Bridge Detroit, but also, um, a strategic thought partner, um, and how, uh, we continue to move in and throughout, uh, neighborhoods and speak with Detroiters. And so we are, um, very excited to, uh, launch that and have some really amazing folks, folks that, you know, Donna, who have committed to serving on that council.
1: Awesome.
0: Yeah. Okay. Now, well, sure. here's, to, uh, here's to the partnership
2: that uh, we're just now beginning between uh, ECN and Bridge Detroit to mm-hmm. produce Authentically Detroit, but then also to get to all kinds of other things that uh, that we'll do together.
0: All yeah. kinds of fun. We're excited about that. Getting ready to happen. <laughs> all kinds of fun. Do you have any yeah. shout outs?
1: Um, I do. I have a shout out to um, ECN's newest board member, Orlando Bailey. You um, <laughs> can't get away from me. Um, <laughs> so we're keeping in the house. And the only thing I'm really hopeful for is that I was a good enough supervisor that he does not have any reason to pay me back because he is not my boss. We start changing places. <laughs> so um, be kind, Orlando. <laughs> Hello.
0: Um, that, you have to tell that story of how that happened because that's just funny to me.
1: Yeah. Well, you know what? We were looking at our board composition and I realized that we did not have in any really young people under the age of 30 on our board. We had nobody um, between the ages of 18 and 25. We didn't have too many young professionals, although we had some youngish people, um, but you know, that's a, an oversight. How can you represent a community and engage a community when you are not even allowing young people to be in your leadership? So, one of the questions we didn't ask today, because I think it was answered, was what does it mean to have Black people um, who are in the leadership of a news organization? And the question is, what does it mean to have young people who are in governance of a nonprofit organization? So we talked about that, and I mean I barely got it out of my mouth before one of our board members asked, "So is there any reason why Orlando Bailey cannot serve on our board?" And so immediately everybody just jumped in and was really excited and um, so they moved and rushed to a vote and um, so you know I smiled and said "I can't wait to give him this news <laughs> <laughs> I know that um, it's a busy time, but we're really excited to have you where you started, um, helping to guide the organization. And um, it's so exciting for us to be able to inform each other's work.
0: Yeah, it's uh, an absolute honor. Shout out to Detroit. Uh, there are no new Detroit COVID deaths reported um, as of Sunday. So that that's really cool. Uh, Bridge Detroit um is launching. Shout out to British Detroit once again. uh it's official official launch is Tuesday, May eighteenth. Uh you'll be hearing this uh podcast on that day. Uh with a you know May nineteenth. May nineteenth. May 19th. Yes. The right. whole press conference and everything. So we're excited. <laughs> um shout out to But you'll
1: heard it here first because you'll hear it.
0: <laughs> we got the exclusive. <laughs> uh, shout out to Chase Canton. We got the
1: exclusive. <laughs>
0: Chase Cantrell and his new project, uh, Next Steps Together, uh, that's happening around Juneteenth, It's a project that will be convening uh, men of color to just have conversations toward healing and shared experiences and stuff like that. Um, I wanna shout out the East Davidson Village Community Group in District Three, I had the opportunity to attend one of their meetings and speak to them. Those residents over there are doing the work. And those are the type of residents that we at British Detroit would definitely want to talk to um, and cover. Um, And uh, the, the man, the man cave event, Donna, the ECN hosted.
1: Oh yes. Yeah. Yeah. So we had a man cave last week. Um, Was it last week? Yes. It was last week on Thursday because we had a board meeting at the same time, but yeah, um, we had a man cave last week. I think it was well attended. People were really excited to talk about the, census, we have decided that we don't just have to talk about the census by talking about the census, but talk about the census by doing things that people enjoy doing. So the conversation was about the last dance as well as other topics around male leadership.
0: Yeah. So uh, uh, Dylan Brown and Daniel Baxter, Uh, facilitated that conversation and it was a good one. So shout out to them and shout out to uh, one Bridge Detroit partner Urban Consulate who will be co-sponsoring the community launch of Bridge Detroit happening uh, May 26th at 4 p.m. on Facebook Live. Anybody else got shout outs? I'm done with mine. Anybody else? Anybody else? We're good ones. I don't want to compete. (laughs) That's (laughs) right.
3: Well, Okay, I come from the hip hop world, so I got to take advantage of some shout outs. <laughs> I'm just shout out my mom Teresa Kelly, and actually I think you know some of the um, Michigan Citizen team. You know some who are still here, Zenobia Jeffries, Polly, but you know hey, some <laughs> who are not. You know um, Jan Frazier, Grace Lee Boggs, uh, Jesse Long Bay, and Ken Zola, and my dad Charles Kelly.
0: Yeah wow that's a monumental monumental list of people that's a monumental list and steve you're good no shout outs we got them all for you shout out out to the end of
2: the school year which uh has been grueling on parents right uh (laughs) it's just uh i feel for all of the parents who had to figure out school e-learning and all that kind of stuff so it ends this week so (laughs) <laughs> Parents and
1: teachers. Um, I want to shout out President Obama for an inspiring commencement address that helped to—he took off the kid gloves this time and, um, you know, made it plain that um, there was nobody in charge. But he did so much to inspire people, and it was great to reflect on um, a brilliant president who actually cared about this nation and the people in it. Um,
0: yeah, we needed to hear. And.
1: Um, I want to shout out the staff at ECN. Um, My sister sent me something last week. She is a federal magistrate judge and um, she read our newsletter that we sent out once a week uh, with information about um, COVID-19 and she came back and said thank you for helping to change the policy for the federal courts because the federal courts found out about free testing for essential workers by reading our magazine and 150 people got tested as a result of that. So um, we try to stay on top of the knowledge and push it out um, the way that we do. And um, I want to thank our staff: um, Savannah, Jesse, Nicole, um, Dylan, and um, let me see who did I miss anybody? Angela, Who's Matthew, Angela, of course, Angela, Matthew, who made it all happen. Um, we have a great team at ECN, and um, you know we stay committed to doing the work even during this, um, you know, shutdown.
0: All right. Thank you, Donna. Well, that's going to do it for this week. We will see you next week. Thank you for listening. We want you to catch the wave.